Welcome to Lingthusiasm, a podcast that's enthusiastic about linguistics. I'm Gretchen McCulloch. And I'm Lauren Gorn. And today we're getting enthusiastic about sonority. But first, happy anniversary Lingthusiasm month. Happy anniversary, Lauren. Happy anniversary, Gretchen. It's been four years of Lingthusiasm. Which is kind of amazing. We launched with three episodes in December 2016, but we celebrate the anniversary in November because we were recording them in advance. It's also our 50th main episode. Those couple of extra episodes that we launched with explain why it's not something divisible by 12. Uh, but we're so excited to hit our 50th episode of main Lingthusiasm episodes in our anniversary month. Which is, yeah, it's a nice round number for another nice round number. Thank you to everybody who has already shared a link to your favorite episode or just your excitement about Lingthusiasm. In honor of our anniversary, there's still another week to do that within our anniversary month. And of course, we welcome this all year round as well. Most people still find podcasts through word of mouth. And a lot of people don't yet realize they could be having a fun linguistics chat in their ears every month or in their eyes because all our episodes also have transcripts. As with every year at our anniversary in particular, we're asking you to help us connect with people who would be totally interested in a linguistics podcast if only they knew Lingthusiasm existed. We've done this call for extra sharing of the Lingthusiasm uh, every year on our anniversary, and we always see in the stats that your recommendations really do help more people find the show. And if you share it on social media, tag us, we'll reply, we'll like your tweet, uh, we'll try to reshare it on our Instagram story and whatever else is applicable. Or if you just send it to one person in private, we won't know about it, but you can feel a warm glow of satisfaction. Or feel free to tell us about it on social media if you want to be thanked. As well as our 50 main episodes, we have over 45 bonus episodes at patreon.com slash lingthusiasm. Our latest episode is a behind-the-scenes chat about writing the scripts for the Crash Course Linguistics series, where we had Jesse Greaser along, who was also part of that team. So if you were looking for even more linguistics, we have also been co-writing the scripts for this big educational YouTube channel, which is Crash Course, if you want to watch some videos about linguistics as well, and know that we were behind the words that the host is saying on those scripts. So uh, we're really excited to, to share those as well, and to get to share a bit of behind the scenes. You now have the option on Patreon to support at a annual level rather than at a monthly level of support. And you can also choose from a range of currencies now. So there are some more options there. Annual subscriptions make a great last minute gift if you are still thinking about something for the holiday season for yourself or for someone else. And of course, Lingthusiasm merch and copies of Because Internet now in paperback also make great gifts, although you have to keep an eye on timing for whether they can be shipped in time. So digital gifts are also great. Lauren, I've been getting really into crossword puzzles lately. That is a wholesome hobby to have. I feel like, you know, it's just one of those things you kind of do on your phone a bit mindlessly. And crossword puzzles always make me think about the way that individual letters, uh, English letters can combine with each other in particular patterns. Because, you know, like you're trying to fill in a particular range of words and you're like, that has to be a vowel there. Or like, that could be a vowel or an R or an L. Like, there's only so many things that could go in this slot when you're trying to like guess the words you don't know. My grandpa taught me to do crossword puzzles, and I feel like I had a really good appreciation for what made 
an English consonant cluster well before I studied linguistics and learnt about things like syllables and phonotactics, which is the fancy way of saying syllable structure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and like this question of it's not just, you know, okay, I want to cheat at Scrabble or I want to like, okay, what if I came up with like some some You don't want to cheat, you want to optimize <laughs> your ability to play Scrabble based on your linguistic analysis abilities. Yeah, and I think that's in many cases word games like crossword puzzles or Scrabble are often the the ways that people think about, okay, which things are more likely to be at the beginning of a syllable or at the end of a syllable, or which kinds of combinations like, oh, I've got an S and a T and an R here. Maybe I can make a word that begins with str, but I'm not going to be able to make a word that begins with like lutris. And those sorts of things at a very broad level are also the kinds of things that linguists think about when it comes to which types of syllable structures are characteristics of some languages and which ones aren't. We've talked about the international phonetic alphabet before uh, and bits and pieces of it, including just specifically the vowels. And the international phonetic alphabet is this way of representing all of the possible sounds in human spoken languages. And there's something about this chart, you know, like the periodic table of sounds. It all seems very – all sounds are equal, all sounds have a set of properties, and they're all just there – But when we actually look at how sounds are put together in speech, we find that not all sounds necessarily exist in the same spaces. Yeah, like there's a sense in which there are certain things you can do with certain sounds, at least in English, if we start with English, and then there are things you don't do with them in the other way. So if we think about like words in English can begin with groups of consonants like BR, BL, KR, KL, GL, GR, DR. So like you can often have this sort of R or L in the second position at the beginning of the word. And the inverse isn't the case at the beginning of a word. You don't have like RB or LL or LB. I'm like that your or- brain is actually struggling to even <laughs> articulate these examples. LG. <laughs> because I'm trying to like move them in my head as I'm doing them. Uh, so you have a word in English like trust. Mm-hmm. or trend, which has TR at the beginning, but you don't have like rutus or rutedden. I can't, like, I have to say that with like three syllables, rutedden, not ten. <laughs> or you have something like plant, but not ulpatten. And what is a possible combination and order at the start of a word is different to what's a possible combination and order at the end of a word. We talked about this in our episode on syllables. And what's interesting is that they kind of mirror each other, right? So you have something like RD at the end of the word or at the end of a syllable, or you can have DR at the beginning. And in both cases, it's the D that's kind of on either side uh, of like the outskirts and the R that's closer towards the center, closer towards the vowel in the middle. I guess like clean and milk, that C, K-K-U-L, and then that K at the beginning and the end. Yeah. There's this weird thing that I've always found like particularly peculiar about English, where English for some reason doesn't like having the same cluster at both the beginning and end of the same syllable. So clean and milk, as you said, totally fine. But if you try to say like Kalilk. Click. Klilk. Click. I keep wanting to go say click. <laughs> or klelk. Cl- it like is somehow weirdly bad, even though all of the constituent pieces are fine. It's just klelk. I mean, if you want to make an alien language that's still easy enough for English speakers to pronounce, but sounds like very distinctly un-Englishy, that is like one of your tickets to do that. Mirroring sounds at the 
beginning and end of the syllable. I'll keep that in mind for the next weird conlang I have to create. <laughs> and then when you notice this sort of mirroring, thinking, okay, well, L is always happier. You know, you can have something that just begins with L and has nothing else, right? But this is in mm-hmm. cases where you have complex consonant clusters. The L is always happier nearer the middle of the word, near the middle of the syllable. Uh, we're just dealing with single syllable words because it's more straightforward to look at them that way because you you know that all of the sounds have to belong to the same syllable if the word only has one syllable. Um, and then like K is happier on the outskirts. And you can think of it kind of like there's a mountain, right? You know, you have like the vowel is like the peak of your mountain. And then on either side, you have so L is like halfway down in both cases. And then K is down in like two different valleys on either side where you, you start in the in the valley with one K, you go up to L and you go up to the vowel, whatever it is. And then you can go back down to like, here's an L or an R or something. And then you're back down with like K and P and B and and all of those letters. And the kinds of letters that hang out at different altitudes on our little mountain walk have similar properties. So maybe we should go for a little hike. Shall we start maybe at the top of the hill? We'll get helicoptered in or maybe take a chairlift. Yeah, let's pretend we've gotten teleported into the to the top of the mountain. Which is where our vowels hang out. Vowels having the particular property in how they're produced that you don't close off anything in your squishy meat tube to produce a vowel. You can change the shape of it. That's why we have different vowels. But it's just a continuous airflow situation. Squishy meat tube being the technical term for vocal tract. Um <laughs> <laughs> And vowels are a kind of thing that, like, if you're going to have something in the middle of a syllable, it's most likely to be a vowel. If you only have one thing in a syllable, it tends to be a vowel. It tends to be a vowel. It's not always a vowel. Like, you can say, hmm. And there's just, like, an M hanging out being a syllable by itself. Hmm. Um, and that's that's not a vowel. But for the most part, at least in English, interjections like hmm and shh and stuff like that, those don't have to have vowels in them. But there aren't a lot of words that do this. So you can have a word like hmm in English, but if you have ah and mm together in a single word, the ah is going to grab the syllable spot first. And then descending downhill from vowels. So some of the stuff involved in making diphthongs. So if you want to make something like oi, oi, that's like, oh, you've got two, a vowel and also a vowelish thing <laughs> that you can still kind of clump in with the vowel. I think that'd be your next step down. Mm-hmm. So still very... Very open and um, easy to sing, I guess, is a, a feature of this openness. Yeah, your mouth is very open. There's a lot of air still going through. It's easy to sing. And now you've got your L and your R and other kind of L and R-like sounds. <laughs> different <laughs> languages do different things with the sounds that we think of as, as L and R-like. These are a really fun catch-all category. We may have to talk about R sounds one day. We have to do a whole episode about L's and or R's because there's a whole lot going on with them. So, and they still have a fair bit of openness. You can think of like, la, there's still kind of a fair bit of air leaving your mouth uh, while you're making, you can try it and really confuse the people around you. (laughs) Yeah. So that's kind of like the next step down our mountain. I feel like we're now in like mountain goat territory rather than like snow caps or something. I don't know how mountains yeah, work. They're definitely near the tree line. <laughs> okay. You know much more about mountains than I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you've got your mm and mm, all of your nasal sounds that are, you know, you've kind of got a certain amount of closure in your mouth, but your nose is sort of making up for it. Still fun singy sounds if you hum along to some music. Yeah, still extremely hummable. And then you've got your sounds that you can still say kind of by themselves, like shh and sss. 
and f and z and stuff like this. You can still say them by themselves without another vowel to come along helping them. And you can think about this if you have like freeze, you have F and then R, and so you're kind of heading up the mountain towards the middle vowel and then heading back down with the z. So you can kind of go through and think about, okay, what's a bunch of like monosyllabic English words with multiple consonants at the beginning or end? How can I sort of reconstruct for myself which bits should be on which parts of the scale? Another example from uh, when we were talking before about meat tubes would be flesh. <laughs> flesh. <laughs> um, and then finally, you've got your, you know, P's and B's and K, G, T, D really hang out at the bottom where you can't make these without fully closing off the mouth for at least a, you know, split second. In fact, the only way we can really tell which sound you're making very easily is because you stick a vowel there to help us hear the difference between a P and a T. Yeah, this is the thing that really blew my mind when I was learning about sounds like this where you fully close off the air, is that like, what's actually going on here is you're just hearing silence and your brain is like, oh no, you're hearing a P because like it makes the following vowel P-like. But like actually what's there when you feel like you're making it is just like this brief split second of silence and you can see it show up on a waveform, but like just just nothing coming out. It's a very exciting, very dynamic little valley that we're in, all these stoppy sounds. <laughs> Yeah, these nice little staccatos like popping off like firecrackers or something. You'd think you could put your firecrackers on the top of the mountains, people could see them better, but that's not how, <laughs> that's not what our metaphor is doing. It's not how this metaphor is going at all. Well, you could think, well, what if we put those firecrackery, like explosive sounds at the top of a different metaphorical mountain? But one thing that's also relevant is that this is also a degree of loudness. Like you can make the sounds at the top of the mountain louder than you can make the sounds at the bottom. So it's partly about the openness and how easy they are to sing, but there's also something to do with loudness happening here. Well, I think when your mouth is more open, you can be more loud with it. Like if mm. you think about if you need to scream, you're not going to scream like, <laughs> <laughs> or if you're trying to like really do some like vocal warm up exercises, you're going to be like, ah, or something. You're not going to be like, pa, 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 pa. I mean, I guess you, you could do that. That is, that is true. But it's really the vowel happening there, not the pa. It's not if you're trying to like be really loud and really project, you're doing that with the vowels and the like the ones that are closer up on the vowel mountain. So if you think about the mountain as kind of a, a loudness amplitude mountain, hmm. the louder stuff is on top. All of these different points along our walk down the mountain have been visiting different ways that we use the mechanics of the mouth to make sounds, which is something that linguists refer to as manner of articulation. And it's one of those features that's represented in the International Phonetic Alphabet. Yeah, and the International Phonetic Alphabet kind of does the inverse metaphor where they put the most closed ones at the top and then they go gradually down until the most open ones. So you have to kind of flip it upside down to get them out, but they're still sort of doing this, you know, sounds exist in a continuum from how open or how closed or how singable or how unsingable they are. And that's relevant, not just in terms of like, okay, how can we describe them? But in terms of how can we put a word together? What happens when you're trying to put a syllable together? Languages tend to have this preference, which shows up across a lot of different languages for making a syllable that has like one mountaintop and its peak, even if it doesn't contain absolutely every single point along that path, because that would probably be too heavy of a syllable for most purposes. But if you're going to pick stuff from along that path, you're going to do that in a particular order. This comes in handy when you're trying to make up plausible non-words as well. So blick is a, you know, plausible non-word in English. It's not really a word as far as I know, but it could be. Someone could have a startup called blick and you'd be like, oh yeah, that's a, that's a thing. 
I think it's the word for blink in German. Oh, yeah, I think it is. Like an Augenblick. Which is always why it's very good to uh, double check if your nonsense words in one language are, in fact, nonsense words in another language if you're expanding your analysis. <laughs> yeah, if you're starting up a startup. I don't think that's offensive to German speakers, but you you do want to double check these things. <laughs> um, you want to check. Yeah. Uh, whereas something like Ulbik has that mm. LB in the other order and suddenly you're like, hmm. Blick isn't a word, but Ulbik is like very not a word in English. And I feel... Even with my limited knowledge of sounds in German, I feel confident that it's not a word in German either. <laughs> with my slightly greater but still not particularly good knowledge German, I also feel very confident in saying this. Um, but yeah, so you can use it to create plausible non-words versus implausible non-words. And that's because those stoppy sounds are right in the valley at the edge of our little peak of sounds that we toured. Yeah, so you'd be like starting up midway up the mountain, then you're going down and then back up again. And that's just like not a thing that languages like to do. They want to do a kind of smooth path. Languages are like me when it comes to climbing a mountain, trying to do it with as little effort as possible. <laughs> well, but I actually think this is an effort thing, not just in a metaphorical sense, right? Because it is an openness of the mouth. And if you think about humans trying to conserve energy in like terms of pronouncing things, it's easier to kind of do a smoother motion of like, my mouth is closed, and then it's somewhat open, and then it's really open, and then it's somewhat closed, and then it's closed again. Like, that's a smoother thing for humans to do gradually over hundreds and thousands of years to actually produce. Have these preferences, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's not as much effort as climbing a mountain. But you know, if you're talking for hours and hours, it would kind of pay off. <laughs> So another example that's kind of on the interestingly non-word spectrum is you could have something like bnik. Mm -hmm. And so how do you feel about bnik as a non-word? Uh, is it like the name of a dish from a language other than English that is going to be really tasty and I'm going to love it? It's like not the worst non-word, but it's not something I recognize. Right. It's somewhere kind of between Blick and Ulbik on the spectrum of like, okay, this doesn't sound like it's an English word. It could have been a word that was borrowed into English from a different language because it still sounds like maybe some language had this as a word. Versus Lick, Ulbik. If I make it two syllables, it's obviously fine. You can be like Ulbik. Sure, that could be a word. But Ulbik, Ulbik. <laughs> We're really trying to make them into one syllable. That one's somehow like, I don't know if any language does this, or if they do, it would be a language that I would have a lot of difficulty in learning how to pronounce. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I'm told like, oh, some language has this word nick, I'm like, oh, okay, well, I could learn how to produce that pretty easily. And again, our stoppy B sound is further down the mountain than the nasal N sound there. So it fits within this pattern as well. Yeah, exactly. It's a pattern that seems to show up kind of similarly, but also differently. Oh, that's a specific way of saying things. <laughs> uh, in many different languages, like, there seems to be sort of a general contour of a of a sort of mountain here with vowels at the middle and, and you know, things along the way that seems to apply to a lot of languages, but different languages sort of do different things with how many places they let you pause along the mountain and pick something else up, or how close those can be to each other, things like that. This property of sounds that changes from the top of our mountain all the way down is known in phonetics as sonority because the sounds at the top of the mountain are considered to be more sonorous and then you have less sonorous sounds and less sonority as you go down the mountain. Yeah, or sometimes people talk about the ones that are kind of in the top half of the mountain as being sonorants, and the M and N, your nasals and above, are sonorants, and then your your sh and s and f and below are non-sonorants or, or obstruents. 
I think maybe linguists got tired of saying, well, it's kind of like singable and it's kind of like, you know, how open your mouth is. It's kind of like this thing. What if we gave this property a name and we called it sonorous? Even though, like, sonority is one of those really interesting concepts to me because when you first encounter it, you're like, wow, this explains everything. And then you encounter more languages or you go to grad school or something and then you're like, oh no, this doesn't make sense at all and this explains nothing and every language does it slightly differently and maybe it doesn't exist. It can kind of exist in both of those states at once where you're like, on the one hand, this does actually seem to account for some stuff. On the other hand, the details of how you want to implement it can get really complicated really quickly. It is quite a squishy phenomenon. And as you said, we can just categorize things as sonorance and non-sonorance and then other people will do a really, really splitty analysis and they'll put sounds like b and g further up their little mountain than p and k. We've just put all of our stop sounds at the very bottom of the valley and other people will even try and split them up even further, which for some languages and for some analyses makes a lot of sense. But we're going to stick with a more broad categorization, I think. Right. And you could try to split up your L-like sounds and your R-like sounds. And for some languages, it might be useful to do this. Or you could split up F and S or something like this, or S and Z or Z. And like, again, for some languages, you're like, oh, yeah, we really need to do it here. And so it's still kind of useful as a general property to say, well, you know, the difference between these two groups of sounds seems to be sonority. And yet for other languages, you're like, now we can just lump them all together and nope, they don't really make a difference between those. So it's this sort of interestingly slippery thing where on the one hand, it probably kind of exists because it does account for a bunch of stuff. And on the other hand, different languages seem to care about it to different degrees. And when it comes to sonority, I don't think there's anything more slippery than this sound. It really illustrates how challenging it can be to work with sonority sometimes. S has this property and it's not just in English, it's across a range of languages where it is somewhere further up in our sonority hierarchy than stops, but it can occur outside of stops in our little consonant syllable setup. So a word like strong or splint, where we would expect something like a T or a P sound to be on the very outside based on our little mountain climbing metaphor, but the S sits outside of that. Yeah. And like, I think when I first encountered this, I was like, look, S seems to be very clearly like maybe below the T's and P's and so on. Why can't we just put it below? But the problem is, is like, it's literally just S. (laughs) Um, It's not any of the other sounds that are produced in a similar manner as S, like Z or F or Th or V or all of these. So they all seem to very happily behave like their cousins <laughs> um, at this sort of mid-level where you can do something like pf, not so much in English, but you can do it in some languages. Like uh, in German, you can have pfennig, which is the old word for penny, which is a pf at the beginning. Or in, in Greek, you can do ks or ps, uh, like psychology. So, you know, there are lots of reasons to be like, oh, yeah, well, you know, S seems to be belong to this class of things on the one hand, which is kind of between... And it's definitely also the case you can do sn, like snore or sneeze or something like this. So it should be below the nasals and it should be above the stops. So like it seems like it should belong to this category. And yet it's also this just massive exception that you can do all sorts of weird stuff with. I like it. It's a free spirit. (laughs) (laughs) Both at the beginning and the end. So, you know, you can do stuff like strong or splint 
at the beginning of a word, but you can also do a word like tense, where the N and then T, okay, we're at the bottom of the mountain, and like, where the heck did this S come from? Why are you here? (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, it's this really interesting sound that you can do all sorts of stuff with. But the neat thing about talking about S in terms of sonority, even though S kind of breaks sonority, (laughs) is that it has this exceptional behavior in several languages, in in a variety of languages that aren't necessarily related to each other in that sort of way. Not all of them. Mm -hmm. Um, Some languages, S is a well-behaved citizen (laughs) and doesn't, (laughs) isn't exceptional. So in Latin, for example, S also has this exceptional behavior. So you have a Latin word like scola, And then in many of the Romance languages that descended from Latin, but not Italian, many of the other Romance languages, Spanish and French and so on, they were like, no, we don't want to start treating S as exceptional anymore. We're going to, (laughs) we're going to, you know, put it back on its best behavior and we're going to introduce a vowel to, you know, to grab onto the S instead so that it's not being an exception. So that's why you get words like escuela, where that S belongs to the vowel at the beginning of the vowel before it. So you can see sort of this question of like, does this language make an exception for S or not is sort of relevant across different languages. It's a sort of interesting parameter that languages can vary on, even related languages. I like how much sonority is providing motivation for quite a few of the examples we talked about in our syllables episode, because it is one of those things that once you begin to see it pop up, it explains or it hangs out in the space of a lot of the ordering phenomena that we looked at for that episode. Yeah, it was an almost an interesting challenge in the syllables episode to not talk about sonority because we thought, okay, we should introduce one thing at a time. But also, sonority is sort of intimately tied up with how do we make syllables and what does a particular language think of as a syllable and, and not a syllable. So in English, one thing that's kind of the case is when you're sort of, you know, climbing up the sonority mountain, do you think of it kind of like a video game and you have like a certain number of slots to like hold things in, mm-hmm. but you need to sort of wait a bit before you pick up something new because you don't, you don't just get to like keep picking up everything like all the way, even though it's all kind of on the way. So if you pick up, let's say a P, you can't also pick up a T at the same time while you're down there. English is like, no, we, we don't have any more slots until we get a bit further up. But in Greek, you can pick up a P and a T at the same time because it's got sort of a different, you know, like video game metaphor holding, you know, uh, system. <laughs> Not that the language thinks of it that way, but you know. <laughs> uh, it's operating with different constraints. Absolutely. It's operating with different constraints. So in, in Greek, you get words like pter, which, which refers to a wing. It's a, it's a root that means wing, which shows up in words like helicopter, helico, pter. And in Greek, pter is a totally good beginning of a syllable. And you can see it in words like pterodactyl, which English speakers don't pronounce that way because English doesn't let you do that. Um, or Ptolemy, which again, English speakers don't pronounce that way. Ptolemy or pterodactyl. And so some languages will let you say, okay, well, you can, yeah, you can pick up several things at the same spot. And other languages will say, no, you have to wait a bit and wait till you get a couple more steps up before you can pick up something new. Russian lets you pick up things that are a little bit closer to each other. Mm. So you can have a word that begins with x in Russian or vl, vl is a really interesting one because there are kind of sort of some English words that begin with vl, but it's just not very common. And English speakers don't always really like it. So you have like vlog, but a lot of English speakers will pronounce that a little bit closer to blog or like vlog. Vlog. Well, and like, and you can have and like fly, flee, flu, you know, flim, flam, like you have lots of fluhs in English. But fluh is just like a little bit like you can kind of do it, but you can't quite put your finger on why it doesn't feel very common. 
If I had a crossword puzzle that was blank L blank blank, I would not be reaching for a V at the start of that word straight up. Absolutely. No, no, no. it would not be what you'd be what you'd be inclined to go for. And so you sometimes see English speakers pronouncing vlog like vlog, just to make it a little bit easier, or with Russian names like Vlad saying it Vlad just to make it a little bit easier to do that, because that one's kind of like, it's kind of there in English, but it's a little bit marginal, similar to like Nick, where you could kind of do it in English, but it's like a little bit difficult for you, because it's not something that the language does a lot. I would uncharitably suggest that part of the reason we don't talk about vlogs anymore is because <laughs> they feel awkward to say as English speakers. And that's I- why we talk about YouTube channels. <laughs> I think it might be. I really didn't think far ahead with my Benick vlog. <laughs> You're going to be a Benick vlogger. <laughs> really just making it not entirely wrong, but slightly awkward for English speakers. <laughs> I mean, I will say that we have a pretty phonotactically weird cluster in the name of our podcast. This is true. <laughs> we were finally admitting it four years in. Like, ling enthusiasm. Like, they belong to different syllables. But they're just done with such distinct places in the mouth that, like, people have a really hard time saying our name. We didn't think that through. Different places and different manners. There is a little bit of stuff that I've read about the influence of sonority preferences across syllables. We meet the requirement. Normally, you have something that's more sonorous at the end of the first syllable than at the beginning of the second syllable. So we got that oh, bit. okay. Good. So we've got mm at the first syllable and then th at the next one and like the, but they're just like one away from each other kind of. So they're not that far. On the topic of names <laughs> in this show, Gretchen. <laughs> well, it's interesting. And I can also sometimes tell when people have said the name Gretchen a lot because for me, because I tend to reduce that final en to just mm, Gretchen. And people who aren't as familiar with the name will tend to give it sort of a full vowel, Gretchen. And it's not that one of them is wrong, because English has this sort of interesting continuum where sometimes we produce syllables that just have a sonorant like M or N or L or R by itself as if it's the only thing in that syllable or as if it's the the center of that syllable, the nucleus of that syllable, instead of there actually being a vowel there. You just say, okay, here's a syllable that's just like consonant-centric. Yes, so even though vowels are at the top of our sonority mountain and you usually expect to find a vowel hanging out in the middle of any syllable party. It's not always the case. We can have one of our other sonorant sounds being the uh, the syllable boss. Is that <laughs> our official terminology? <laughs> yeah. So if you have words like button, bottle, prism, like even rhythm, like where where is the vowel? No. Okay. No vowel. No. Okay. Fine. <laughs> sure. And so sometimes you kind of don't go all the way up the mountain. You just like go up to a certain point and you're like, yeah, that's fine. I'm going to go back down. Yeah. It's interesting that some like button, when I pronounce them with clear, full articulation, I put a vowel there, but I'm pretty sure that if I was just- Button. 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 But if I was just talking about how I had to press all these buttons really quickly, there you go. If I force myself into unmonitored speech, I'd just pronounce it as an- syllable or a syllabic nasal. It's interesting how for some of them, we only do it as a reduction thing. But then for prism, I don't think there might be like a tiny vowel-ish thing there. But yeah, if you're really trying to spell it out, like go get the prism, you could maybe put a vowel there. But I think it would really sound like you were hyper articulating that. 
Whereas bottle, you could say it with a full vowel there and it would be fine. Yeah. So in English, they have this kind of semi-autonomous, sonorant, non-vowel syllable status, but uh, it's not necessarily the case for all languages. There are some languages where you do get these vowelless syllables fairly frequently and centrally. Well, it kind of really makes you want to check in on like English in 500 years, which obviously we are all going to be around for. <laughs> um, because like, maybe by that point, this, you know, casual speech, unmonitored speech, rapid speech pronunciation will just like be how it is. And English will have this like full featured set of like, oh, yeah, these are just our syllabic consonants that nobody ever says button. That sounds so weird. Everyone says button all the time. Because like, that's how that's how language change happens, right? And there are some languages that don't have syllabic consonants at all, and there are some languages that do a whole lot more with syllabic consonants. And two sort of famous languages when it comes to syllables without vowels in them, both mm-hmm. of them are languages that have been known by multiple names in their history. So one of them is a language that has been known as Berber, and speakers aren't particularly fond of that name anymore. They have There are several different dialects or varieties, and there are different names for different varieties of those. Um, so huh. it still sometimes shows up in the literature as like, oh, Berber has vowelless syllables. And I'm not sure which of all these varieties, if they all have syllables that don't have vowels in them, or entire words that don't have vowels, or if there are some that do and some that don't. That's something that's been kind of left unclear by the change in naming convention through the literature. Interesting. I have heard people talk about Berber, and it is good to know I have to mentally update uh, my name for that language. Yeah, so Tashelheit is the variety of Berber that's been talked about most uh, in terms of having uh, vowelless syllables. I knew some Amazigh speakers once, and I don't know if they had vowelless syllables as well, because I didn't know them that well. Um, but they <laughs> they definitely prefer to be called Amazigh rather than Berber. So it's, yeah, it's an interesting sort of uh, not knowing much about the typology of this language family, whether this is something that's true of the whole macro group of languages or just of Tashelheit. Uh, I'm honestly not sure. These languages are spoken in Morocco and that part of the northern African region. Yeah. And then in another part of the world, another language that's often cited as a language that has syllables without vowels at all or words without vowels um, is Nuhalk, which mm-hmm. is a Salishan language spoken in British Columbia in Canada. So obviously, sorry, very different parts of the world. And I think several of the Salishan languages may also have have not a lot of vowels going on. But the one that I've heard being cited is called Nuhalk. It's in some older literature as Bellacula, but speakers prefer Nuhalk. Cool. So it's not just a thing that pops up in like edge cases, but is a central feature of how these languages make syllables. Yeah, and they do have some vowels elsewhere. The words that tend to get attention are the ones that have, you know, lots of consonants. There's kind of one very famous example from Nuhalk, which is translated, then he had had in his possession a bunchberry plant. And it's, you know, this is a language where you can make what would be a a full sentence in some languages you can make into a single word. I'm definitely not going to do this justice. So we can link to that and maybe hopefully find an audio clip where someone has actually pronounced it properly. But it's got like over a dozen sounds in it. And it's, you know, when you're talking about kind of theories of syllabification, it's not just, okay, it's got the syllabic n or syllabic ul, which is sort of somewhat straightforward. um, But they also make syllables around sounds like s or sh or other types of fricative-based sounds where you have, okay, this could also be the center of a syllable. Like, you're really not going very far up the sonority mountain at all. And one of those really wonderful examples of crafting a slightly absurd sentence for the most linguistically rewarding possible outcome in this case. That's definitely what the Bunchberry plant (laughs) example is, yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
when I first encountered this in grad school, this like, oh, you can make syllables that are based around things that aren't vowels and aren't even necessarily sonorants. It was kind of hard for me to wrap my head around. But then I was also thinking about, well, we have sort of semi words or, you know, fixed interjections like ps and shh and stuff like that in English, where you you do end up producing what you would write as P-S-S-T or (laughs) S-H-H-H or something like that. You'd write that without any vowels and you'd say it without any vowels. It's just that we don't build other syllables and other words around it. But in terms of actually producing it, it's not particularly difficult. Like any any English speaker is able to to produce things along those lines. So it's, it's an interesting example of how something can be presented in a way that makes it sort of exotified and then also has this sort of very humdrum local existence that isn't necessarily brought out when you first get exposed to an example like that. Sonority doesn't just pop up while we're talking about the structure of syllables. I also ran into our old friend Sonority while analyzing the way that tone is done in Yolmo. So like many other languages in the world, the difference between some words is the difference in the tone of the word. And so a word with high tone like to or a low tone like to, they have the same consonant and the same vowel. They only differ by tone. To is rice and to is stone. So obviously, even for someone who is not always good at producing tone like me, people generally knew if I wanted to eat more rice and didn't try and give me stones because <laughs> people are very accommodating. <laughs> they were nice, yeah. <laughs> um, but not all of the sounds in the language have high and low tone. Some only have high oh. and some only have low. And oh, interesting. The ones that do have both are those that begin with or are only vowels or laterals or rotics or nasals and also our fricative s so almost everything that has high and low tone are relatively high up the sonority mountain of course from then on it all gets a bit messier you also get k and um ch in there as well and then you only get low tone on your voiced z and g and j and high on your very aspirant k and ch and but overall friend sonority just kind of pops by and says hello so the stuff that's more sonorous has kind of more tone options and for the stuff that's less sonorous it's either one or the other kind of as a very broad generalization how you split off that one or the other depends on some other factors yeah but sonority is kind of a piece of that puzzle yeah the tone system came out of some older consonant clusters like english has lots of clustery sounds you get fewer of those in these Tibetan languages as they're spoken today. And that's what the tone system came out of. So it could just be a bit of a a coincidence that this reduction in the consonant clusters and the current sonority kind of play out in the tone system. But I mean, this is a thing about sonority. It kind of pops up and is kind of part of the explanation of things. But then there are lots of other historical or contextual factors in each specific language that are also are in play. Right. And like, on the one hand, you want to be like, look, sonority, it's kind of fake because like, yeah, you have these languages with vowel syllables and you have languages that like don't pay attention to it and do it in all sorts of different ways. And then sometimes- And you have S in English. And you have S in English, which just like, who knows? But then also sometimes it sort of pops up in, in places where you weren't expecting it. And you're like, oh, this is actually generalization that actually kind of helps with this particular bit of analysis. Ah, maybe we still want to have sonority after all. 
For more Lingthusiasm and links to all the things mentioned in this episode, go to lingthusiasm.com. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And you can follow at Lingthusiasm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr. You can get IPA scarves, IPA socks, and other Lingthusiasm merch at lingthusiasm.com slash merch. I tweet and blog as Superlinguo. I can be found as at Gretchen A. McSee on Twitter. My blog is allthingslinguistic.com. And my book about internet language is called Because Internet, now in paperback. Have you listened to all the Lingthusiasm episodes and you wish there were more? You can get access to 45 bonus episodes to listen to right now at patreon.com slash lingthusiasm or follow the links from our website. Patrons also get access to our Discord chat room to talk with other linguistics fans and other rewards, as well as helping keep the show ad-free. Recent bonus topics include pangrams, honorifics, and a behind-the-scenes episode on writing Crash Course Linguistics. Can't afford to pledge? That's okay, too. We also really appreciate it if you can recommend Lingthusiasm to anyone who needs a little more linguistics in their life, especially in this, our anniversary month. Lingthusiasm is created and produced by Gretchen McCulloch and Lauren Gorn. Our senior producer is Claire Gorn, our editorial producer is Sarah Doppiarella, and our music is Ancient City by The Triangles. Stay Lingthusiastic! Lingthusiastic!